Welcome to another Calvary Baltimore B-Side with our senior pastor, Josh Plantholt. B-Sides are a companion to the weekly sermon, giving an in-depth look behind the teaching. And now with running commentary to complement this week's sermon, here's Pastor Josh. Well, welcome uh, to B-Sides. We are in Revelation chapter 9 today. Uh, And fun, fun, uh, this is... Uh, with Sunday morning and our, our Mondays combined, this is our hundredth teaching in Revelation. So we are gonna make it. We're gonna make it. Um, so let's let's hop right in here. We got some fun stuff ahead of us. Uh, first verse one, uh, Revelation nine. You know we should we should pray. God, we love you, we praise you, we thank you. We we ask that you would be with us today, that you would strengthen us today. We ask that you would draw us near today. And we have in a long time. God, we ask that we would be faithful in all that we do, in all that we read, all that we say. us to act like your children, God, and live lives that draw from your smile. In Jesus' name, we love you, God. Amen. So, let's hop right into verse 1 here. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Uh, three things here, uh, and this is to help frame our thinking about this scene in general. Three things here for key, shaft, and pit. First, uh, this is our third set of keys in this book. I find that interesting. Uh, the first set opened uh, death in Hades, which Jesus held. Uh, the second set was the key of David, which Jesus used to bring people into his presence. Remember, he had the keys of David. It was the into the line, into, into God's covenant, uh, his, his presence. And now today, the third set is for the wall, the well door of the abyss. So there's lots of keys in this book. Secondly, the shaft. The word shaft here typically means well, like a well of water. Uh, in the Bible, if we turn to the LXX, uh, in, in Genesis 6, uh, so the LXX <laughs> uh, is the Greek Old and New Testament. You know, I, I was talking with somebody, this is a total side note, but since these are B-sides, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> um, I was talking to somebody and they were saying, in order to understand the Old, you know, in order to understand the Bible, you have to be studying the Hebrew. It's the only way to understand it. And, you know, I'm a pretty sociable fella and I don't have to be right all the time even if I think someone's wrong I don't feel the need to correct them all the time uh, but in this particular case I said you know let me push back a little uh, and they said sure and I said when you look at the gospel accounts when you look at um, 
uh, the New Testament, one of the things that become clear is when they quote the Old Testament, whether they quote it verbatim from the Greek or whether they do a self-translation from Hebrew to Greek for themselves. If it's a direct verbatim from, from the Greek uh, Old Testament, uh, then it's very clear that, that that some of our gospel writers, some of the New Testament epistles, were written using Greek Old Testament. So what's really fascinating about this, and of course the Old Testament was to be written was written in Hebrew, but there was a Greek uh, a, a translation of the Bible. And what's really clear is Matthew, Luke, and John all seem to be using Greek Old Testaments. It was Mark who used the Hebrew Old Testament. And there are passages that you can pull out there, and then there's you know there's Hebrew, but but th that seems to be the the general consensus there. And so what's really clear is that there were different translations of the Bible even in Jesus's day, and some of Jesus's own disciples, his own guys, used different translations. So all these translation wars that are happening is pretty ridiculous when you understand history and how the Bible was assembled. But but anyway, if we look at um, the Greek Old Testament, not the Hebrew, but the Greek, that's called the LXX. And in the Greek Old Testament, one of the reasons the Greek Old Testament is so good is because when you see a word in the New Testament, you can now trace it directly back to the Old, because it's the same language. Well, in the Greek Old Testament, in Genesis 16, 14, Genesis 21, 14, 19, 25, 31, etc., uh, th this is the same word used here in Revelation, and it means a well, the well of the abyss. Okay, so it it's a, it's a it's a source of water that's that's happening here. So this shaft seems to be saying well, and then thirdly, pit. This term bottomless pit means abuso or uh, abyss. And really interesting, if we see in Genesis one verse two. Uh, Let's read it. Uh, I'll start at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the abyss, the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That word for deep is abyss. It's the same word used in Revelation for the bottomless pit. Point being, if we take all of these things together, it seems that the abyss is within a body of water. That the door to the abyss is within water. Then this door now needs to be keyed, needs to be unlocked, and, and it is within some body of water. Uh, anyways, these are some fun things for us to, to kick around here. Uh, let's keep going. Verse 2. And this is just, again, isn't this such a different way to think about the abyss? Anyways. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, uh, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. Uh, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Again, darkness, more darkness is coming upon the unbelieving world. Then then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, like the power of scorpions uh, of the earth. And isn't that interesting? They look like locusts, but they act like scorpions. Uh, yet they fly. <laughs> Uh, they were told not to harm the grass of the of the earth or any green tree plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Two things first. 
If anyone remembers, when I was running through the seals, uh, I talked about how the trees that were not allowed to be destroyed by the plague may be talking about Christians. So, remember, uh, the opening of the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1, uh, the, God, God symboled this book to John. Literally means uh, Samino, symboled uh, this book to John. So, we want to... We want to be looking for symbols everywhere because that's what John told us to do. As much as I take a lot of things literally, it's also filled with symbols. So we want we want to look we want to look for symbols. And one of the things that we were kicking around is that trees keep seemingly to be unharmed in this book. And the question is 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 are, are trees in this book symbolic for people and specifically the church? And again, Christians in Scripture are likened to trees. This is throughout the Bible. This is Psalm 1. Uh, uh, the, the righteous man is like a tree planted by streams of water. Uh, Jesus did the same thing. He talked about people as if they were good or bad trees. So Jesus makes this connection. And here in Revelation, we have the 144,000 and believers put into the same position as the trees. They're not allowed to be harmed. So... I don't hold this view that the trees in Revelation are symbolic or symbol for people, but I will say there's a very, very good argument for it, uh, and this is a pretty good example that that may be the case. I, again, I don't hold that spot, um, but if God said, no, they're, they're people, I'd go, I'm not surprised. <laughs> uh, just something to chew on as we go through this book. Uh, and then secondly... <clears throat> I love drawing on these B-sides specifically. I, I love drawing, um, pointing to where to where Revelation is drawing from, from the Old Testament. Yeah. So much Revelation is built upon things and themes that God has already established in the Old. Or, uh, or in the First Testament, not the Second. Um, and this passage that we're seeing here today seems to be drawing pretty heavily from a passage in Ezekiel 9. I'm going to read it to you. Uh, it's Ezekiel 9, starting in verse 1. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with, uh, with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the uh, direction of the upper gate, which faces north each with his weapon for slaughter uh, in his hand. And with them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his waist. And, uh, and they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his waist. And the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare and you shall so show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. 
and begin at my sanctuary, the, the temple. <laughs> so these locusts from the pit in Revelation, a drawing from Ezekiel 9, may be unleashed upon the world and fly directly to the temple of the Lord at Mount Moriah, because it seems that the, the, the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt in this time, and then begin their tormenting. Let's keep reading verse 6, Ezekiel 9. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, defile that, the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city, and while they were striking, and I was left alone, I fell upon my face and cried, I Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? And Ezekiel asks, God, will you destroy everybody in your wrath, in your holy anger? Now, if Revelation is building upon this Ezekiel text, as it seems to be, God now fully answers Ezekiel's question. This will last for five months, and these beasts will not kill like they did in Ezekiel's day, but only torment. Now, what's happening in Ezekiel is a unique situation, but it seems that God's adding new layers of depth to it. Um, and so it, it seems that these people will not be killed by these horrid beasts, but only be tormented. And so there are some differences to these two texts uh, but also, uh, there, there's too many similarities to ignore. Uh, so let's keep going. Verse 5. And they were allowed to torment for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. And they will long to die, but death will flee from them. So, this five months... <laughs> Uh, I, I wasn't even sure I was going to share this on, on the B-side, but let's do it. Um, so here, here's a few thoughts. Uh, Deborah, uh, 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 Elliot, uh, reached out to me uh, yesterday, and she said the five months might be um, uh, drawing from the 150 days of the flood. And I thought, well, boy, that's a pretty interesting thought. Noah's ark, uh, it, but it rained, it rained, uh, you know, days and then uh, days and then days. And so maybe, maybe the flood is uh, in the picture here. I, I'm not, I'm not leaning that way, but it could be, um, maybe. <laughs> Another thought is from Pentecost until uh, the Feast of Booths, Sukkoth, uh, is around five months. So maybe the Jewish feast days are being worked into this passage was another possibility. I, I just, I don't know. I couldn't find anything that I, I felt really strongly about. Um, and then verse 7, uh, In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle on their heads, were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair looked like women's hair. And their teeth like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And their noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. Interesting, all of the chest vestigers that we've seen in this book uh, in, in Revelation have been associated thus far with priesthood. So, so I'm wondering if this breastplate like iron it is just to be understood 
uh, as warrior imagery or if it is also somehow pointing to there being priests to Apollyon. Uh, so maybe these are demonic priests. I, I don't know if that's what's being said, but it but it's just a it's an interesting thought. Uh, verse ten, and they have tails and sting like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Why two names for the same person? Well, I believe the reason is to show that this plague will affect both Jew and Gentile alike, which I shared on Sunday. What I didn't share on Sunday is that if we keep Ezekiel 9 in view here, these scorpion locust uh, creatures, they will come and torment the Jew first in Jerusalem, and then the Gentiles as the swarm moves beyond the city of Jerusalem. In Ezekiel 9, these tormentors go directly to the temple and then work outwards. So maybe that's the clue here to connect uh, Ezekiel 9 to this passage in Revelation. Now, some scholars think that the Greek Apollyon is added here because it is a play on the Greek god Apollo. And and this is a good, a good time to stop here and remember that these books weren't written outside of their local situations. <laughs> so when when we when we're reading uh, the anything in the New Testament, we want to keep in mind somewhere in the background Rome. We want to keep in mind Semitic context. We want to keep in mind that when Jesus is telling parables, he's talking to a to a certain culture. Uh, and understanding that culture helps us understand what Jesus is saying, and, and, and over and over and over again. Well, here John is a prisoner of Rome on the island of Patmos, and here he writes um, Apollyon, which seems to be a play on the Greek god Apollo. And a lot of scholars go, "Aha!" <laughs> uh, because the god Apollo was an important god in Rome, partly because Roman emperors often used to associate their powers of destruction with Apollo himself. Now, knowing this, many scholars feel that this use of Apollyon, which is close to the word Apollo, maybe a, a, a play on the name, somehow is referencing the Roman emperor of the day, and that Apollyon being destroyed at the end of the book of Revelation is somehow anti-Roman literature. That, that within the book of Revelation is a coded message to the church that God's going to crush Caesar and Rome. I just don't find that to be what's happening here. Uh, I find that connection unlikely because if this letter, if Revelation was a coded message to Christians that Rome was going to be destroyed, uh, we would have a lot of other really clear allusions in this book to Rome's demise. We wouldn't have so few if this was all a, a coded message about Rome's going to get destroyed. Uh, and if we want to be historically consistent, it seems God's plan to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the nations, was not to destroy Rome. <laughs> God's plan to advance the church was not to tear down Rome, but to convert it. 
Which is why, which is why, by 380 under Emperor Theodosius, Christianity was decreed the official religion of Rome, and and something that's to be understood about what Theodosius uh, signed into law here was that the the, the official state-sponsored Christianity that, that Rome then took part in was not some really awful version of Christianity, but was Nicene Creed Christianity. It had a pretty strong and rich theological foundation, so it was largely very solid. And so if God's plan was to convert Rome by destroying the destroyer, that does not seem to be what happened. It seems that God converted Caesar through a few lines, not destroy him. So I just don't buy that part. Um, so let's, let's close our, our time out here um, together. By talking about the abyss, uh, this isn't deeply practical, but I'm, as far as like, oh, I'm going to use this to apply to my life. But uh, I, I think this is helpful for us to think about demonology. Uh, so I want to talk about the abyss and about things that are uh, about the things that are about to come out of it. So I want to quote uh, Koster here, who's building upon Nickelsberg's work. I got introduced to Nickelberg uh, about 10 years ago uh, on a study on First Enoch uh, and temple literature. So he's got some good stuff. So this is Koster building upon Nickelsberg. Uh, Revelation's depiction of the abyss has affinities with those in some Jewish writings. Now what that means is that the way Revelation talks about the abyss is found also in some other Jewish writings from that time. Again, these books weren't written in a vacuum. They have local contexts and other writings they're drawing from. Uh, you know, uh, the book of Proverbs, Solomon. Many of Solomon's Proverbs are drawn from Egyptian literature. He read old Egyptian pagan writings and found truths in them and extracted them. So, you know, this isn't, these things aren't written in a vacuum. So anyways, uh, Revelation seems to be, uh, uh, have some affinities with those in some Jewish writings. According to First Enoch, Enoch was taken to a place where he was shown terrible things, a great fire burning and flame there. And for us, the abyss in Revelation had smoke coming out of it. And where there's smoke, there's fire. <laughs> so fire is in this abyss, according to the Bible. And the place, keep uh, reading uh, the, the quote, and the place had a narrow cleft extending to the abyss, full of great pillars of fire, borne downwards. The fiery cleft resembles the shaft in Revelation 9, verses 1 and 2. The difference is that Enoch sees an abyss in which fallen angels are imprisoned forever. Uh, and, and and so here's where we get a lot of the, the Nephilim uh, and the Anakim and, and all of the things that we see um, in, in intertestamental literature about the fallen angels that we see so heavenly in First Enoch. And Jude seems to confirm that these that there were fallen angels that came from heaven that God did imprison in a specific place, which seems to confirm that portion of First Enoch. Uh, and of course, First Enoch is, seems to be building upon uh, the literature of, gener uh, of the, what God wrote in Genesis 6, where God the, the sons of God looked down and beheld the daughters of, of men and came down and intermarried with them, and from them came the line of the giants, So, or the men of renown, it says. So he, 
So, so maybe that's what's happening here. Uh, whereas Revelation pictures an abyss from which demonic beings can be released. Ah, so there's the difference. In First Enoch, people aren't allowed to leave. In Revelation, they can be released. So in this respect, Revelation more resembles the book of Jubilees. Now, what we're about to read is really cool. So, so what Koster is saying, building upon Nicholsburg, is not that Revelation is building upon the sources of First Enoch, but is building, is, is maybe confirming some of the truths from the book of Jubilees. In this respect, Revelation resembles Jubilees, the book of Jubilees, which says about nine-tenths of the demons are confined to the abyss until the day of judgment, and the other one-tenth are allowed to roam the earth, testing people along with the devil. In Revelation 9, the demonic, demonic beings are released to afflict the ungodly. End quote. If Revelation is confirming the Jubilee's account, which I'm not saying it is, I'm not I'm not saying it is, it, but it could be, could be. Uh, if this is true, then during the time of Christ, only about ten percent of the demons were allowed to roam the earth. Now that that kind of makes sense to me because when we look at Revelation, remember it says myriads of myriads of angels. There were hundreds of millions of angels. Well, as we know from Revelation, a third of the angels had fallen. So there's probably at least a hundred million demons. Can you imagine what would happen if God allowed all of them loose onto the earth? There, there would be, they would, during the first century, they would be everywhere. Because the population of the earth isn't the size it was now. Uh, so uh, I'd imagine the 10% that God only allowed a portion of demons out upon the earth and 10% sounds like that's a possibility. Now I'd imagine, I'd imagine if 10% were around at the time of Christ, and again, this may not be the case, just hold this with grain, grain of salt. Um, I'd imagine that, that, that number may be even less today as I suspect Jesus and the apostles cast the demons out of people and likely sent them into the abyss. Again, this is another area I could be wrong. But it seems that when Jesus cast the demons out, that he didn't just send them out to go find somebody else. <laughs> it seems that he sent them out to a particular place. And what I would argue is, is he would send them back into the abyss to be locked up with their the other 90%. Um, now, could Jesus cast the demon out and let them fly somewhere and find someone else in a few weeks? He could. If that's what God decided to do, he's wise and right in his decision. But but I would suspect that they were imprisoned in the abyss. And, and this is a, a, a gospel account I want us to look at thinking about these things. This is from Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. When he arrived at the other side of the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men came from the tombs and met him. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. What do you want from us, O son of God? They shouted. Have you come to to here to torture us before the appointed time? Some distance from, the from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding, and the demons bade Jesus, If you drive us out, send us into the herd of pigs. Now notice the demons wanted to go 
into the pigs as opposed to go somewhere else. Right? Uh, so I, I, I'm proposing that somewhere else is the abyss. And this could explain why there are so, there, there's so much less visible demonic possession in our time, in our culture, because both Jesus and the church casted so many demons into the abyss. Uh, so they thinned out the demonic herd, so to speak. And could I be off here again? Of course I can. But this seems to be um, what I'm drawing upon as I read the scriptures. Now, another passage on this is Matthew 12, verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And Jesus is talking about Jerusalem in that particular passage, but he uses the unclean spirits as, as a as an analogy there. Now, this seems to say that when demons leave a person's body, they walk around and then can return, which would mean that they are not locked in the abyss. So that could be the contrary uh, text to the Matthew, uh, Matthew 8 one. But the difference between those two passages, unlike Jesus casting demons out in Matthew 8, here in Matthew 12, the demons freely leave themselves. So it seems that a demon can leave somebody, walk around, and come back. But it seems that when, when a Christian or, or someone filled with the Spirit of God casts out a demon, they can bind them uh, into the abyss. Again, this would explain why there seems to be so much less demonic activity in our culture because the church can cast these things to the abyss. Again, could I be wrong? Sure. <laughs> sure I could. But again, building upon scripture, this seems to be what is happening. Now, here's the point. If Jubilees is telling the truth, if, if only, and maybe it's not, but if only a percentage of demons are allowed on the earth today, and there's a larger percentage held in this abyss. Here, what we're starting to see in the book of Revelation, starting at verse 9, and this is foundational and this is true, we're starting to see that they are being released upon the world. Revelation 9 marks, marks the beginning of the demonic being let loose out of their cages, so to speak, and allowed to torment humanity. And regardless of whatever the book of Jubilee says, we, we know the demonic forces that have been locked away are now starting to be let loose upon the world at, at this particular time in human history, whenever Revelation 9 occurs. And this is one of the reasons why the, 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 the eagle flying directly overhead right after, right at the end of chapter 8, uh, who I believe to be the cherub with a face like an eagle, he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is the reason why, one, why this is a woe from God. This is a dreadful reality that demonic beings are starting to be let loose upon the world. This will be a dreadful time for all who reject Jesus Christ. Now, how we do apply this, because we've had to filter through a lot of intertestamental literature here, and maybe I've lost you already, I don't know. But how we apply all this is we read all these things and go, there's a whole lot of bad coming. This, this world of ours, it, <laughs> it's not going to magically turn into some utopia. It isn't going to happen. 
uh, you know, Christ, Christ will advance his church and whatever Christ touches, he will bring life, of course. But there's also a lot of pain. And so it is our job here and now. God has us here for, for such a time as this. And our job as believers is to believe God's word and go, my God, pain is coming. Evil is coming. Death is coming. Judgment is coming. And it is our job as believers who believe the word of God to warn people of the coming wrath. To warn them to... to, to Find safety in the ark to draw from Noah and the ark, that story. To, to come into the church, to, to abide in Christ, and to avoid the wrath that is rightfully coming to a wicked, wicked world. And this is to give us a sense of urgency that, my God, the world needs Christ. And I know him. <laughs> and I have to share this message because I can't bear the thought of some of my loved ones going through this and so that's how we apply all these things with that we're done finito over uh let's let's uh pray here and uh we'll get moving on with our time uh god we love you we praise you we thank you we ask that you would guide and direct us that you would uh, you would give us a sense of urgency in our evangelism that you would open up doors for us to share the gospel, that you would use us mightily. God, we thank you for who you are and how you operate. We thank you that you have given us these things to warn us, God, to let us know that the time is at hand and people need your truth and your word is truth. And so be with us now. Send us out in a fresh new way, God. Fill us to, br to the brim with your Holy Spirit now. Let us not only share the gospel and advance the gospel, God, but help us to live, to live it. Mm. To live lives worthy of the calling you've placed upon us. Let us love greatly. Let us forgive sacrificially. Let us be generous and kind and pure and tender-hearted, God. Let us be vulnerable for your sake. Be with us now, and in Jesus' name we love you, God. Amen. I love you all so much. Uh, for those of you that uh, want to know, uh, we, our Beller Bible study starts tonight, uh, so our, first, our Harford County home groups are starting to open up. Uh, so if you are in Harford County, uh, we have home groups starting night from 6 to 7.30 in Bel Air, and in two weeks it'll be from 6 to 7.30 in Abingdon. Uh, and then then back and back and back and back and we're going through the gospel of matthew so if that's something you'd like uh information on go you can go check out our faith life um if you're if you're in the church there and uh and if not you can message us and we can we can send you some uh, details about the addresses and all that kind of stuff so anyways i love you all have a good day bye Thanks for joining us for this Calvary Baltimore B-Side. If you'd like to get in touch or come visit us at Calvary Baltimore, our website is calvarychapelbaltimore.org. You can email us at calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you've been blessed by today's teaching and would like to donate to the work God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. 
Until next time, keep drawing closer to God through the reading of His Word. And join us again for the next Calvary Baltimore B-Side.